thankful for another opportunity to be with you this evening. I enjoyed the morning so much and uh, being able to uh, spend some time after our worship services with the elders, their wives, and it was uh, very encouraging to get to be with all of them. But I appreciate every one of you. I received uh, such encouraging feedback after our studies this morning, and I want to continue with another very practical study uh, this evening. I was about 19 or 20 years old at the time. I had taken two or three friends quail hunting with me growing up in Oklahoma. There was a lot of quail when I was young, and my dad was an avid quail hunter. I was raised doing that, and so I took a couple of friends that I was working construction with to uh, hunt in an area where I'd hunted since I was a young child. It was on public land along the South Canadian River, and the access to it uh, was to be had uh, through some property that had been in my family for uh, many, many years, probably nearly a hundred years. My parents, my aunts and uncles, all jointly owned this land, and they didn't farm it themselves. We once did, but they leased it out to a farmer who didn't actually know me. And so when I took my friends hunting, we were coming back, and we had parked our trucks there on uh, my parents' property, and as we were approaching them and crossing a fence, the farmer came as fast as I've ever seen anyone drive across a field. <laughs> he was in a rage. He jumped out of his truck, and I thought he was probably going to attack me. He was so angry. He began yelling at all of us and cussing and absolutely humiliating me in front of my friends. At 19 or 20, I was still pretty insecure, and I sure didn't want someone to treat me that way when I told him that this was our land. The amazing thing about that, and maybe you've experienced this before too, he was so aggressive that I just froze. I didn't know what to do. And it was all over before I knew it, and he drove off, and I was still wondering what just happened. I was completely humiliated. And I was furious when it was over that I had allowed it to happen. And I would say that for two or three decades, Every time that I would remember that event, I would seethe with anger and bitterness. When I would even hear the man's name, the same bitterness would come back. For years immediately after, I would replay it in my mind and think of what I wish I would have done or what I would still like to do. It ate me up for a long time. Eventually, I didn't think of it often, but when it came back, that same anger was there. I had been taken captive by bitterness, and I didn't even know it. And I didn't realize it because I believed that I was justified in the way that I felt. And I would expect that this is something that many of us have experienced at one time or another. Maybe the circumstances are different, but I would expect that you have felt at least that tinge of bitterness at one time or another. And you know, the challenge with bitterness is that it starts out small many times. It's just an offense. The way that someone said it, just the little snide or passive-aggressive way that they put it, the way that they looked when they said it, and that offense buries its way in our heart. We replay it in our minds, and it begins to create deep ruts that will be hard to build back up. We retell our injury to others, anyone who's willing to listen, every detail. We then begin to enlist support, pushing 
us further into resentment as people agree with us. You ought to be angry. You ought to be hurt. I would be mad too. We hear the offending person's name and we cringe. We decipher the offense as intentional and our offender as full of spite. We look for other reasons. I'm sorry, I've gotten behind with my slides here, so bear with me as I catch up. We look for other reasons, real or imagined, to dislike our villain. With each new piece of information, we form another layer of bitterness. And the sad thing is that we fool ourselves into thinking that no one's going to know. But the reality is that anger and resentment, they have a way of seeping into everything that we do, into every interaction that we have, if it's big enough. Someone has said that resentment and bitterness is like a beach ball. We try to submerge it in the water, and no matter how valiant our efforts, it pops up with all its vitality and splashes everyone around. I think that's a profound way of putting it. Romans chapter 12 says in verse 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What about that person that injured me? What about that person that has offended me so deeply? How exactly can we do that? How can we prevent bitterness from moving into our hearts? How can we deal with our feelings instead of letting them grow into bitterness? I want to ask you this evening, have you been challenged? Have you ever been wronged by someone and then found yourself seething with anger and then eventually with bitterness. Maybe it was a friend that betrayed your trust and left you feeling wounded. Maybe someone twisted your words and assumed the worst and slandered your reputation and other people believed it. Maybe they still believe it. Maybe your child was hurt deeply or humiliated by a friend or maybe even by an adult. It's very easy to see when it's someone else who is consumed with bitterness, but it's a lot harder to recognize when it happens to us. As I said, it is so easy to justify the bitterness that's eating us from the inside out because we believe that it's justified. We have a right. We have a reason. As we consider some of the ways that we've been hurt by others, it can be easy to let that bitterness just eventually consume us. It's easy to see, as I said, when it's someone else that's consumed, it's harder when it's happening to us. Someone has written about bitterness that bitterness is like a slow poison. One negative thought leads to another, and soon we're tossing and turning at night, replaying hurtful interactions, making a new plan to get even. You know, the book of Hebrews warns us about the danger of bitterness in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 15. I know you're familiar with this text. He, he's talked in chapter 12 about laying aside every weight and about the discipline of God, the training of God. And then he tells us, he warns us, he says in verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Isn't that interesting how he uses a metaphor of a root of bitterness? It's something that has taken root, it's, it's already there, and then it springs up. We're about to see some of that with the weeds this spring. We don't even know that it's there, but it's taken root. He said that that's the way that bitterness is. 
As I said earlier, it burrows its way into your heart. And many people don't even know it's there. Sometimes you're deceived into thinking that it's not a problem. And then it springs up, and as he said, many become defiled. Many become defiled because what I said earlier is that we share with anyone that will listen about our injury and our hurt. And they begin to accept it and to think less of the other person. When we talk about bitterness, what exactly is it that we're talking about? You know, when we think about this idea of bitterness, we think about really the taste of bitterness. And I believe that really what we have here is a metaphor, if you will. We, we, we think about the idea of bitter foods like lemon and like red grapefruit, Brussels sprouts, kale, apple cider vinegar, and my favorite coffee. It's amazing that we can actually develop a palate for some of these bitter things. And I'm told by people who are chefs that it actually can complement foods when you uh, combine bitter things with sweet things. I, I'm not sure I know about that, but I, I'll take their word for it. But what I do know is that bitter tastes repel us. You know, smells and tastes, God has made us in such a way that the way that things smell or the way that things taste, they either have a push or a pull stimulus in our brain. Something that smells or tastes good causes us to lean in, doesn't it? But something that smells terrible or tastes bitter causes us to draw back and to be repelled in disgust. And that's the effect that bitter emotions have on us toward another person. But it gets a lot worse than our reaction to bitter food or drink. Because when we think about bitterness, as far as what the Bible's talking about, we think about emotional pain. We think about distress. We think about hostility, resentment. And obviously, these are some very negative things. These are the same ideas that the Scripture brings out. In the Old Testament, we read about Esau in Genesis 27, when he had been tricked by his brother Jacob. In verse 34, he cried, Esau cries out with a great and bitter cry upon realizing that Jacob has tricked him out of the birthright. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, in chapter 1 and in verse 20, refused to be called pleasant and requests to be called bitter, Mara, because she feels the Lord has dealt bitterly with her in the loss of her husband and her children. Job, in the book of Job, in chapter 3 and in verse 20, Job asked God why he gives life to those who are bitter of soul. In other words, that being bitter is worse than death. The New Testament has this word used about four times. Acts 8 and 23, we'll notice later, where Paul speaks to Simon the sorcerer and says, says that he is in, uh, uh, consumed with bitterness. Romans chapter 3 and verse 13, just talking about cursing and bitterness being in the mouths of others. But Ephesians 4 and verse 31, telling us that we must put off bitterness. And the text that we just read in Hebrews 12 and in verse 15, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause many to become defiled. I don't really think that we need to define the word. I could give you Art and Gingrich's definition, but bitterness means bitterness. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that we need to go any deeper than that. We know what that means. It is anger. It's resentment at being treated unfairly. It's animosity and it's harshness. And we see a number of examples of it. Cain toward Abel in Genesis chapter 4 and verses 3 through 8. The Bible says that after they, they brought their offering to God, that God respected Abel and his offering. Verse 4 of Genesis 4. 
in verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And God even warned him. God said in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. He's warning him about the bitterness that he had in his heart toward his brother. And John tells us in 1 John that it was his bitterness turned to hatred that caused him to murder his brother. Moses at the water of Meribah at Kadesh, Numbers 20, we read about that this morning. And we saw the bitterness that was eventually developed and cultivated in Moses toward the people as he referred to them as rebels. And as I said, I sympathize with Moses. And I'm not going to say that there was not some justification for his feelings, but here's the point about bitterness. We can argue all day about whether or not our feelings are just. That doesn't matter. Because those feelings, as just as they may seem, will destroy you like cancer destroys the body. And then, the, and then it won't matter whether it was just or not. We've destroyed ourselves. Or maybe it's turned to hatred as it did with Cain and with Abel. As we think about these examples, Moses there, a Saul toward David, another example, as he became bitter as David was receiving the accolades of his uh, 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 campaigns against the Philistines, Saul became deeply bitter, so much so that he tried to take his life on a number of occasions. That's what happens with this. You see, someone has said that harboring bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. I think that that's a pretty good way of looking at it because that's really what's going on. When we let ourselves get bitter with someone, we might wish that they would die, but we're the one drinking the poison. This person went on and said, the more I feed bitterness in my heart, the more it brings death to me. Brethren, this is serious. We need to understand the reality of what we're dealing with when we let ourselves get to that point with another person. Someone else wrote that bitterness is poison dipped in honey. It tastes sweet going down, and then it kills us from the inside out. You know, when we get to that point that we are bitter, we crave any information that is going to justify our bitterness we want to hear more facts that's going, to, that's going to hold up the reason that we have the bitterness toward this person. It is in this way that bitterness is the poster child for the deceitfulness of sin. Whenever we love something that brings death to us, the devil has us right where he wants us. Does he not? When we actually enjoy the feeling of getting information that strengthens our bitterness, we have fallen in love with something that will kill us. Satan needs to do nothing more. I think it's interesting that in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 23, Peter refers to bitterness as poisoned. He speaks about the fact that Simon the sorcerer was poisoned by bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You know, I haven't figured out exactly who Simon was bitter toward or what he was bitter about, but I want to tell you what's perfectly clear, and that is that bitterness is, in fact, a poison. 
And we are very mindful of keeping poisons put up, of not ingesting poison, of treating them with the right way, or wearing gloves, or wearing a mask, or, or, or being careful with these things. The Bible's telling us that bitterness is a poison. And so we need to ask ourselves, how then do we keep ourselves from being poisoned? How do we overcome bitterness if we've already fallen prey to the poison? How do we then overcome those feelings? We've already cultivated them. We've already generated those feelings. Or maybe we haven't gotten there completely, but the injury is there. The harm has come. And if it hasn't, it's going to. And if it has, it's going to happen again and again. And not just with that person. Other people, other circumstances. It might not even be a person. It might be an illness. It might be an injury. It might be a financial downturn or a family problem. You know, there's a lot of things that we can get absolutely bitter with. How do we overcome that? Well, that's what our study is all about this evening. So let's look at some cures. The first thing that I think that we need to do is go back and look at an Old Testament example. You know, sometimes our pain and our anger from an offense or a perceived offense, it can make us lose our perspective. We begin to inflate things in our minds, and that helps to justify our bitterness more. When I think about Joseph, I cannot think about a person who has suffered more injustice outside of Jesus Christ. His story amazes me. And even after reading the story of Joseph countless times, I'm still stunned by the wounds that Joseph suffered because few of us have suffered or faced any degree of mistreatment that compares to what he went through. Many times when we're struggling with bitterness, we're absolutely convinced that our circumstance justifies our attitude, our anger. You, do, you don't know how bad I've been treated. But in those cases, God says, I want to introduce you to someone. <laughs> Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel. Here's somebody that's going to teach you something about overcoming bitterness. If there was ever a man who had a right to be bitter, it was Joseph. In Genesis chapter 37, I know you're familiar with the account. It tells us about his brother's animosity toward him in verse 4, their desire even to murder him in verses 18 through 20. Reuben intervenes in verse 21, and so at the suggestion of Judah, they sell him into slavery. I want to tell you, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the measure of hatred and injustice and pain that he suffered at the hands of his brothers. I had two older brothers. I thought at one point that they were the meanest two boys in the county. <laughs> they were always playing tricks on me. You know, every time we went swimming somewhere in the pond or in the river, they wanted to baptize me, and I wasn't willing. You know, I didn't come forward, but they were going to immerse me in the water again and again. I, I won't even go into all the stories. If you've had older brothers, you know what I'm talking about. But they loved me. And, and, and that, that love is still there. When I read this, I can't even grasp the pain of having that kind of, uh, that kind of injury, that kind of insult, that kind of destruction against me from my own brothers. The psalmist writes about it in the 105th Psalm. In the 105th Psalm and in verse 18, the psalmist speaks of Joseph and, he, and it says, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. 
We've never experienced anything like that. He ends up, of course, in Egypt as a slave, but things don't end there. While he's in Egypt, he continues to suffer even more injustice and hardship. He refuses the advances of his master's wife. She lies about him, accuses him of trying to assault her, and now he's thrown into prison. He's lied and betrayed again. In prison, he helps one of his fellow inmates who later forgot about him when he was released, and he was betrayed even again. But finally, finally, Joseph has given the opportunity to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. It appears by the providence of God. And as a result of that, he is put in charge of distributing the food that was stored up. Or, or I'm sorry, as a result of that, he is appointed to a very high position. And he is used in preparation for a famine that he foretold. He's put in charge of distributing the food. And it would appear that justice had finally been served. We might look at that and think, wow, isn't that beautiful? But then there's a group of men that come from another land to buy food, and Joseph recognizes them as his own brothers. And now he comes face to face with how to deal with whatever feelings he might have had, whatever feelings he might have compromised, or, or, or compartmentalized, excuse me, he had to come face to face with that. How was he going to deal with that? Here he is, a powerful man. He has the very lives of his brothers in his hands. What's he going to do? What would we do? That's the question we need to ask. And we see in chapter 45 and verses 1 through 15 that he weeps. He's filled with thanksgiving to be reunited with his brothers. He gives them gifts. How could Joseph treat these guys so good after all they had done to him? In Genesis 42 and in verse 21, his brothers make this statement. We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. You know, that's not told about in the account back there in chapter 37. He was pleading with them and they didn't care. Can you imagine how broken his heart was? Joseph must have fought a tough battle with bitterness, but he won. You know, one writer observed that the final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure contemptuous treatment without resentment. That's true. And Joseph showed, by that standard, he showed his greatness. I'm stunned by the measure of evil that was committed against him but I am also amazed by how long his mistreatment went on. He was sold into slavery at about 17 years old, and he was finally promoted to leadership in Egypt at 30 years old. That's based on Genesis 37.2 and Genesis 41.46. But the point is, 13 years before he got a breakthrough, I don't think I've ever had to wait that long for anything as far as waiting on the Lord. Thirteen years after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers are worried that his animosity and his vengefulness might still be deep in his heart, that maybe he was just waiting for his dad to pass. This is the perfect opportunity for Joseph to get even. But I want you to notice, turn to Genesis 50, and I want to start reading there in verse 15. In Genesis chapter 50 and in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us 
and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? That reminds us of all the passages where God says, Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. That's something Joseph understood all the way back here. Joseph said, But as for you, you meant it. Uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive, now therefore do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, Joseph did not necessarily acknowledge that all of his brothers had great character. <laughs> he didn't acknowledge that they were yet who they ought to be. But what I do know is that their father was made aware. They had to come face to face with their father, the man that they lied to, they had to acknowledge their sin. The bottom line is that Joseph went through all those years, and yet he was not vengeful. He could have viewed this as an opportunity for justice, but instead he understood that God's blessing and providence were not given to him to serve his own selfish desires. He saw it as an opportunity for good for his family. I'm impressed. But then also, Joseph's initiative. I'm impressed by the fact that Joseph is actually the one who took the initiative, who acted first to turn back his bitterness. You know, one of the reasons that people end up becoming bitter is because they're not willing to take the initiative to be active in their own rescue. They're going to sit there and seethe in that poison, in that poisonous stew and simmer until the other person comes and says they're sorry where do we find that that needs to happen first we don't find it in scripture as a matter of fact in matthew 18 and verse 15 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault you take the initiative or in matthew 5 and 23 if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother we have a responsibility either way. That's what we're supposed to do. I'm impressed by his initiative. He took the first step, and we need to learn from that. And I'm impressed by his kindness. Notice he doesn't just forgive his brothers. He floods them with acts of kindness. He gives them food when they didn't deserve any. He protects them in Genesis 50 and in verse 21. I want you to notice how the Bible teaches the, uh, or describes the hatred of his brothers when he was young. In chapter 37 and in verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. But Joseph's heart was not contaminated with envy. It wasn't contaminated with hatred. And we see it in the kind way that he spoke to them. He did good. And that's what we've got to learn, that doing active good for another can actually heal the emotional hurt. If they're sick, be the first one to take some food or send a card. If they need some help, be the first one to show up 
have him over for a meal. It's not going to be easy, but it's the right thing to do. Now, understand, I'm talking about someone who may have hurt you. If somebody's committed sin, we've already talked about the fact we need to take the initiative to go to them because the most important thing is that they be saved, that they be forgiven of their sin. But one of the things that we can do to help bring that about is to show kindness in the meantime. The bottom line is that with Joseph, all the evil that was brought into his life by Satan, it was undone by God through the right choices that Joseph made. He overcame evil with good. Sometimes I'm waiting for God to do all the work, crush Satan, get him back. And I look to Joseph and I see, oh, God's saying, I will through you. There's not a greater way to put that back in Satan's face, to be able to turn that back on him than for each one of us to learn from Joseph. And I want to tell you where all this came from was the perspective that Joseph was able to maintain throughout all of this. I am taught and encouraged by Joseph's way of looking at everything that happened to him. In Genesis 50, he said, as we read earlier in verse 19 through 20, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. When Joseph goes back and reflects on what happened, he doesn't focus on all the terrible things that his brothers did. He focuses on the good that could come from it. He focuses on what God had done positively in his life. And here's what I want us to understand. That was a choice. Joseph made a deliberate choice to focus on that instead of on the injury. And that's where we've got to get to. If we want to overcome bitterness, we have to make a choice to focus. We have to make a choice to focus on what God can bring about as good and what his purpose is rather than on the injury. It may be difficult at times to see the work that God can accomplish in our mistreatment, but we can be certain that God, as he says in Romans 8 and verse 28, can make even this mistreatment work together for good to those who love the Lord. You know, I've been impressed with the fact that sometimes our most objective and beneficial critics are our enemies. What I mean by that is sometimes it's those people that really mean us harm and yet what they say can actually be helpful. We need to pay attention to what they say. I can benefit from their wounds. Maybe they're saying it to hurt me. Think about what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 1 when he said there are some that preach the gospel out of envy, out of spite. They want to they add a, a, a torment to his chains. And he said, I'm glad they're preaching. He was able to see the good in it. We need to be able to deal objectively with criticism even when it comes from our enemies. You know, I see in the New Testament where God brings things from left field sometimes. In other words, he brings things from a place that we would not expect. Jesus out of Nazareth, one case in point. I think about Apollos being taught more accurately. Here's an eloquent man, and these are two humble tent makers that take him aside and explain to him more accurately the way of life. We have to always be open, and sometimes it's even from our enemies that we're going to find out something about ourselves that we need to know. That doesn't change the fact that what they're doing is wrong. 
but it helps us to be able to approach these things. Has some unfair criticism of your children made you reevaluate your parenting? Then some good came from it. Has some insensitive or harsh statement by others, some failure to offer help or even to notice your pain during a time of need, has that made you more careful to care for others and to be more sensitive with what you say and how you handle yourself? Then it's brought about good. Sometimes that difficult person can actually help me grow in patience. You know, James said in James 1 and verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I've had people who have tried to help, who have done more harm than help. They meant well. I learned patience. I could focus on the harm, but I need to focus on what I can gain from it. So how do we overcome this? I can learn from Joseph, but what is the cure? What is the cure then? Well, let me say first and foremost, stop feeding it. Stop feeding the bitterness. You need to starve it. And in order to starve it, we've got to know what it feeds on. In Proverbs 17 and verse 9, he says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. That's a good starting point. The antithesis of grace or forgiveness is something called repeating a matter. And there are two primary ways that we can repeat a matter, and each one of them feeds bitterness in our hearts. We can repeat the matter to ourselves, as I said, that's one of the first steps. It creates those ruts in my mind. It's hard to fill in. We replay the tape of the other person's offense over and over again in our mind. That's maybe the most common feeder of bitterness. Every time we replay someone's sin in our minds, we're watering the seed of bitterness in our heart and it grows. Stop feeding it. Number two, we repeat the matter to someone else. The Bible calls that gossip. One thing to notice about gossip is that it harms four different parties. It harms the speaker, it harms the subject, the one being gossiped about, it harms the listener, and it grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, 29-31. Every time we repeat a matter in either of these two ways, what we're doing is we're fertilizing, we're feeding that bitterness in our heart. Let me offer this caveat. There are certainly situations where we must lovingly and prayerfully confront the person who sinned against us and discuss their offense with them. As a matter of fact, it's our duty to lovingly communicate how we've been sinned against so that that person can take steps toward their own growth. And there are also situations where we might need to report an offense to the authorities, especially in criminal activity or abuse cases. Or maybe there's times when we need to discuss some sins committed against us with a counselor, a therapist, or with others. None of these are what is being discussed in Proverbs 17 and in verse 9 when he calls it repeating a matter. But instead, this verse in Proverbs 17 is warning us about the danger of allowing bitterness and vengefulness to consume us and causing it causing us to repeat the matter with the intent to harm the one who has harmed us. And whenever we do this, the devil gets a foothold 
to sow the death-producing seeds of bitterness inside us again and again and again. I want to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, which of these feeders of bitterness do you need to be on guard against right now, at this point in your life? Because all of us struggle with this in one way or another. Let me suggest another thing that will help us to cure bitterness, and that is to resolve the insecurity. You know, we looked earlier at Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, in verses 3 through 8. And as we look at Cain and his bitterness toward his brother, I want you to notice the role of insecurity in Cain. He was not accepted by God. And instead of doing what he needed to do to have God's acceptance, he just got bitter. It was everyone else's fault. It was his brother's fault. Whatever his rationalization was, it was bitterness that led him down a path that ended in murdering his own flesh and blood. But I want to suggest to you it started with the insecurity of not having God's acceptance. He could have fixed that. And that's what God was warning him about. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, this is, this is a no-brainer, Cain. This can be solved immediately. But if you're not willing to solve it, sin is crouching at the door. Even with Saul toward David. Insecurity. And all of this happened because Saul was not accepted by God, but rather rejected for doing things his own way with Amalek. The king and the best of the animals and possessions. And it was his insecurity of not being accepted and approved of by God that led to envy, and it all worked together to develop bitterness. And I think one of the ugliest cases that we read about may be second only to Cain with his brother. Brethren, I want to suggest that a great deal of bitterness that grows within us finds its genesis in some form of insecurity that we haven't resolved or taken care of. Now bear with me. I want you to consider this. I say we haven't taken care of it because the panacea or the cure-all of all bitterness is first and foremost a healthy, secure relationship with our God and our Father as well as with Christ our Savior. When our faith and our fellowship is with God, when our walk with God is genuine, when it is real, when it is daily, when it is personal, then we are secure with ourselves and we are much less phased by the slights or the transgressions of others. We know who our Father is. We know that He will care for us. And we're in the right place to be able to commit these wrongs to God, to put them in His hands, and to place our own conduct under His direction. When our relationship with Him is real, I'm not going to say that we don't ever fight some insecurities that come up. Satan's going to be, he's going to keep trying to make us feel insecure in every area of life. But I will say this, that when we are secure with our relationship with God, we're going to be far more secure with our relationship with other people. And where people have a problem with us, we're going to be able to take it in stride. We're going to be able to file it in the right place. We're going to be able to extend some grace to some of them. And with others, we'll just consider the source. And we're going to do whatever we need to do 
with their judgment. But we're going to be able to take it to God, let Him direct us in the proper response. I just want us to see that we are fighting a battle, when we're fighting a battle with bitterness, and we're looking for a cure, we might need to go back first and foremost and take care of a problem that we might have with God. You might say, well, that's, that's not my problem at all. Maybe not. But maybe we just lack the self-awareness. Maybe we need some outside of objective input. Maybe we need to talk to the elders or some of the older members, people who have overcome bitterness. And maybe we'll realize that we don't have the relationship with God that we think that we do. I'm telling you, when you take care of that, you will get rid of insecurity, and that takes away a whole venue of bitterness to be able to affect you. But then thirdly, I want us to see that if we're going to cure bitterness, we're going to have to acknowledge that my bitterness is my sin and own it. I didn't say that the injury or the sin that they committed is my fault. I said that my bitterness is my sin regardless of what's been done against me. We cannot say, well, I'll stop being bitter when they say they're sorry. My repentance toward bitterness cannot be contingent on the repentance of others. A bitter person will stop being bitter when they confess it to God, repent of it, and accept His pardon. And when that happens, many times it's surprising how quickly the other person resolves the matter with us. It doesn't always happen, but it's amazing sometimes how quickly it does happen. Second or or, uh, fourth, let me also suggest that we learn to trust the work of God. I want to tell you, whatever you're facing today, it is in God's care and His control. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. You can trust Him. He's trustworthy. He won't let you down. That's what that means. He is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful. Trust Him. He's working in this. The promotion at work that you weren't given, the empty arms that long for a child, and you don't understand why you can't have one, the words that questioned your integrity unjustly, God sees, God hears, God knows. I've always been impressed with God's words as He spoke to Moses about the children of Israel that He, or excuse me, before, before He spoke to Moses. The Bible tells us about the, the suffering of Israel in Egyptian bondage in Exodus chapter 1. And the Bible says that God saw the bitterness of their suffering and He acknowledged them. He heard their cry. In every way, God felt and experienced and knew what they needed Him to know. Again, in Romans chapter 8 and in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. That doesn't say that all things that happen to us are good. It says that by God's power, His providence, that He can take even the bad things, even that messenger of Satan, and He can make all things work together for good 
to those who love the Lord. Nothing is wasted. Cling to the fact that God has a purpose for your good and for His glory in the midst of your suffering. And then also, if I'm going to cure bitterness, I'm going to have to do it by the power of God's grace. What what I mean by that is unmerited or undeserved favor. The power to put away bitterness is just like the power to eliminate any other sin. It is a power that comes by the grace of God that we see in Him, that we imitate, that He showed us. He took the initiative and showed us how to do that. Ephesians 4 says in verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We're told here to take what we've been given and extend it to others. You know, the true test of our standing in His grace is the measure of grace that we extend to those who have wronged us. So instead of giving someone a taste of their own medicine, instead of slandering their reputation, instead of harboring bitterness and resentment, live out the gospel of grace. Extend grace as Christ extended it. I've got a whole nother sermon on grace versus forgiveness. They're two different things. They work together. And I don't have time to get into all of that. But suffice it to say for now, that there are many people that God has not forgiven, but He has extended grace to them. So when we talk about extending grace, I'm not talking about extending forgiveness in every case. God doesn't do that. He hasn't forgiven many people in this world, but He's extended His grace through Jesus Christ and through you and taking the gospel to them. So when I'm talking about extending grace, I'm talking about kindness, about patience, about unmerited favor. Love is the foundation of that. Colossians 3 and verse 14, it's the bond of perfection from which grace flows. Mercy is grace put into action. So love, genuine love, agape love is the answer. This love is the foundation of the grace that we extend by reason of loving kindness and mercy. Forgiveness is a transaction that is dependent upon repentance. Our forgiveness is to be an imitation of God's forgiveness. God forgives when we repent. He does not call on us to do what He will not do. But He does call on us to love and to show mercy and to extend kindness and unmerited favor and grace as He does. But also, let us demonstrate that love in a practical way. Just like Joseph gave to the very people who sought to destroy his life, we can look for ways to express love in a tangible way. Joseph made a deliberate decision to guard and return his love for his brothers. He chose to nurture and generate that love so that it was there when he needed it to produce and extend grace. And we need to do the same thing when we've been hurt. If we're not careful to fight bitterness, we'll soon be consumed by the poison that leaves us in the pit of despair. True freedom and joy is going to be found by embracing the gospel of grace. And the cure for bitterness is not found in getting even, but by giving grace, as God in Christ did to us. Remember God's promises. God, Christ-like love and grace are cultivated by keeping the promises of God at the forefront of our mind. And I want to suggest some of God's promises. God promises that He is grieved by the evil that's committed against us and that He will avenge us. Proverbs 
20 and verse 22. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. God promises us that He's pleased by our desire to show grace and that He will reward us. Hebrews 11 and 6. James 1 and verse 12. And God promises us that mercy is waiting for every repentant sinner, including you. If we'll rest in these promises, we'll be able to overcome. And then finally, in Exodus 15, in verses 22 through 25, when the children of Israel came up from the Red Sea, they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and when he cast it into the water, the waters were made sweet. I read an article by Brother Lawrence Kelly that was so good on the subject of bitterness, and he made the suggestion that we need to cast a tree into that bitter water. And his point was that God has the power to take away that bitterness. But the point that he really made, that Lawrence made in his article that I thought was so profound, is that in the middle of history, God placed a tree in the middle of the world and gave His Son to die on that tree in order to take away our bitterness and replace it with the sweetness of Christ who extended grace even to His murderers. That's the tree that we need to cast into that bitter water. Let us not forget the death of Jesus, His death on the cross. And I'm pretty sure that we can get our minds off of that injury. Why can't I overcome bitterness? Most of our bitterness and anger toward others is rooted in an inability to be profoundly amazed at Christ's love for us and our sin. I want you to be aware of that tonight and to know that Jesus, while He could be and justly should be bitter with us and our sin against Him, He put that away and He loved us. He died on that cross. He extended that grace to us and His forgiveness is available to everyone here tonight. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, then you need to do that. Come believing in Him, confess your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. If as a child of God, you've fallen prey to the devil, you've sinned, you need to make yourself right with God. If you've been guilty of bitterness, then pray to God. If perhaps this sin, this poison of bitterness be forgiven you, and you can put this away. If you need our prayers, we'll pray with you and for you. But whatever your need is, won't you please come while we stand and sing the imitation song?